0: 10, minutes, 10 nine, eight,
1: We're going to have to turn seven, around to all those six, people who keep, keep saying, but we've always done it that way. It's our young people that are going to have to do it. One, zero, and lift off! Welcome to the Ongoing Transformation, a podcast from Issues in Science and Technology. Issues is a quarterly journal published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine and Arizona State University. I'm JD Tolosic. I'm the Director of culture Programs of the National Academy of Sciences. The National Academy of Sciences is hosting a poetry and science exhibition in Washington, D.C. entitled Poets for Science. It runs from the time of this recording through September 8, 2023. The exhibit is organized by the Wick Poetry Center at Kent State University. So what is the relationship between poetry and science? How are they similar? On this episode, we'll explore the connections between poetry, neuroscience, and society with poet Jane Hirschfeld and neuroscientist Virginia Sturm. Jane is the curator of the Poets for Science exhibition. She is an award-winning poet and author of nine collections of poetry. Her work encompasses a large range of influences drawing from the sciences, as well as the worlds of literary, intellectual, artistic, and spiritual traditions. Virginia is the John Douglas French Alzheimer's Foundation Endowment Professor at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research focuses on identifying the neural systems that support emotion and social behavior in neurodegenerative disease and neurodevelopmental disorders. Jane and Virginia, welcome. I'm glad you're here, and I'm so looking forward to this conversation.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here.
1: Fantastic. Jane, I wonder if we could just start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about this project that you're a part of called Poets for Science and why a poet of your caliber is interested in this conversation?
2: Well, I'd be happy to, and I'll try to keep it short because I could take the whole time. I began being interested in science as a child who never really studied the sciences. The scientific references have been present in my own poems from the beginning, but what has happened over the course of my life is that science has become, I think for everyone who lives in this country, in this world, a central vocabulary for understanding our existence. We live in a world of science, we talk over Zoom through things discovered by science, And similarly, my own personal metaphors for understanding my own life have been drawn quite naturally from science because poets draw from everything. But what happened very specifically that led to Poets for Science was that a certain president was elected some years ago, and on the fifth day of that administration, They took down every reference to climate change from the White House website, and they also instructed every scientist who worked for the federal government not to speak of their work publicly without first having it vetted by the political heads of their agencies. And I was as stunned as if the White House had begun to censor the poets, because many of my friends are research scientists. So I wrote a poem. I sent the poem to a few friends. They sent it to other friends. I started hearing back. And very shortly after that, the March for Science was announced uh, to happen in Washington DC in April. And I said to a few other friends over a dinner after a poetry reading, I wonder if the March for Science would like some poetry present at the march. Do you think that's a good idea? And everybody said yes. That's a lovely idea. I sent a little note with six, ide- with seven ideas, and a few weeks later, I got something back from the organizers saying they loved six of them. And we ended up with a tent on the Washington Mall, with poetry workshops being given to the public. There was a teach-in before the march, uh, so there was a tent. With human-sized poetry banners, you know, lining the inside and the outside of it, poetry workshops being offered, a way to write poems digitally through your smartphone or or the iPads that they had there. I read my poem to forty or 50,000 people, um, and I had thought this was a one-day project, but by the time it happened, a different event in Brooklyn, the universe in verse, they asked for the banners. And so the banners went on a bus up to New York from Washington, and it became very clear that this wasn't a one-day event, that the installation was wanted other places. It's gone up in nine or ten places around the country in the intervening years. And while it began as a very distinctly activist project, it has turned into a project of Alliance of mutual delight in these two creative endeavors, these two ways of knowing the world that share so much, and yet people think are different. So, you know, the very phrase poets for science, you could see people's faces when they came near the tent and saw it. You could see them do double takes and then go, What on earth could that be? And then they would begin reading the poems, and their faces would change into wonder. And awe and amazement because they would find some poem talking about their own discipline. Uh, There are poems about math, there's poems about telescopes, there's poems about MRI machines, there's poems about natural history. And so I think of it as a form of mutual support in which the microscope and the metaphor are seen not as different, but as part of the great human endeavor of knowing our lives more deeply.
1: Jane, that's really wonderful, and I I think we have Virginia with us, who is a scientist and who just happens to do work specifically around neural systems and emotional and social behavior. Virginia, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your work and specifically how it might help us understand what is going on in the process of understanding language and maybe specifically literature and poetry.
0: Sure. Um, I'm a researcher at the University of California, San Francisco in the Department of Neurology at the Memory and Aging Center. And there I study emotions in people across the lifespan, but we often focus our studies on people with various clinical disorders, such as different forms of dementia and also we have a separate line of studies looking at children with various neurodevelopmental disorders, including things like dyslexia. So our broad goals are to understand emotions and how they are represented in the brain and how they can go awry in different disorders. Sometimes emotions are reduced and impaired, and other times, actually, emotions are enhanced and elevated and lead to wonderful strengths and talents. And so, through all of these different lines of research, we've gotten to explore how the brain interacts with the body in order to produce these changes in autonomic nervous system activity, such as changes in heart rate and breathing and sweating on your hands and changes in your facial expression, all contribute to these feelings that we have during different emotional states. And emotions are important not just because we feel different ways, but really because they motivate us to act in certain ways. So, you know, in Jane's story, she was describing that she felt maybe perhaps outrage or anger, I'm just guessing, and it motivated her <laughs> to take action and to literally go to Washington. So that's the power of an emotion as it drives us to act in certain ways. So literature and poetry are really interesting to think about in terms of emotion, because they're written and verbal forms of art. And so when we think about language and more verbal forms of expression, we often think of the left hemisphere of the brain. And the left hemisphere is very important for things like reading and spelling and forms of math. And this system is very critical when we read a book or we read a paragraph or we read a poem. But the other really interesting thing to think about when we think about poetry specifically is all of the nonverbal stuff that we imagine immediately upon reading these beautiful words. So each word in and of itself has a sound associated with the different letters. Um, It has a shape when we write it on a page. And those are kind of the more linguistic elements of the word that we have to process with our brains to see it and transform those shapes into sounds that we can hear in our minds and then we link them to meaning but these words also trigger lots of feelings within us and different emotions and we imagine things we go into our own minds we can imagine the descriptions in the in the poem or the or the book and we might care a lot about the characters that we're reading about, or we might feel very powerful emotions based on the choice of words that the author has selected.
1: Virginia, that that is fantastic. I wanna note that you you started talking about the left brain, right brain. And in a lot of times when we talk about left brain, right brain, I think the public perception is that they are two sort of independent operating parts of the brain, but then you beautifully went on to describe how they're interactive and how they're like circuitry that interact with each other. Like one can't function completely without the other one, the sort of the intuitive and the rational, uh, which is, I think a lot of what, you know, Jane is talking about when she's talking about the art and science that we have these divisions, but they're not really divisions within our Brain, not in the not in a sort of siloed academic sense. I wonder if you talk a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, the the left brain and the right brain uh, dichotomy is helpful. You know, it's simple. It's a framework I think people uh, intuitively understand, and it does explain some things. But it, it is very oversimplified and misses a lot. So as you as you mentioned, there is some idea that the two hemispheres are a little bit in competition. And that, you know, we say, oh, I'm right-brained or I'm left-brained. I I don't think it's that that simple because, as you noted, the connections between the hemispheres are inseparable, you know, and even words that we think are very left hemisphere-based, for example, that might not have a clear emotional tone to them or, you know, a word like computer or desk. However, there's been lots of studies suggesting that even simple words we have we actually have feelings about them you can tell me if you like the sound of the word or the word computer or desk we have feelings about that word it's attached to memories it's attached to facts and the words themselves can trigger feelings in us again via our physiology and maybe our our movements and we can't separate that from just the word itself and so In poetry in particular, because words are so selectively chosen, um, and I'd love to hear from Jane about that process of searching through her own brain for the perfect word in a poem or in a line of a poem. I imagine one must have to have access to a library of lots of words. But then it's also really using that word to conjure up images And feelings in the reader that are very nonverbal. And that's where the left brain connects immediately to the right. And I wonder if poets actually have a super highway between the left and the right, especially in the front parts of the brain, to link these words in ways that the rest of us would never even imagine linking.
1: Well, Virginia, I think the way that you described sort of the emotional connection with the word not just what the word means but our our memory attached to that word i think that's poetic and i'm sort of thinking maybe we have a scientist who's actually a poet here what do you think jane
2: Well, Virginia and I have some history in that I've been a poet in residence for the Memory and Aging Center in the Neuroscience Department at UCSF. And so we've had this conversation over time. And she is one of my favorite research scientists because all her areas of interest and her ability to express them the way she does are so close to my heart. I think what Virginia is describing is what I think of as the very technology of how poems work. Because after all, a word is merely ink on a page. You know, there there is nothing in ink on a page. It is two colors that contrast and some shapes, and it is utterly without meaning until first the writer and then the reader takes these sounds or these printed shapes and brings them to life as if you were blowing air into a balloon. You give them their actual life and tension and visible existence and great, buoyant, ebullient beauty by bringing your full, embodied, experienced life into them. It's the only way poems work. Symbols are empty without our human body of knowledge coming into them and giving them meaning. Meaning itself is an incredibly slippery word. When I have tried to look for definitions of meaning, it kind of evaporates under you. The etymology of it goes Old English. So Latin, it's a little related to, you know, men's thinking, mental. Old English, it's merely, it's strange, to say, tell, or complain. But Old Irish to wish, to desire. And so, you know, the meaning of meaning is very hard to put your finger on verbally, and yet every one of us knows in our body when something feels meaningful. One of the things which fascinates me is poets have intuitions about things that scientists can then either prove or disprove with, you, you know, instrumentation and investigation. And a line that came into one of my poems, because I like using science in poems, Uh, was a discovery some good number of years ago that if somebody says the word orange, the taste center of the brain activates. And this goes to Virginia's work on empathy in that, you know, if an orange is only meaningful to you through your own taste buds, if you've never eaten an orange, you don't know what the meaning of orange is. I, I of course, mean the fruit and not the color. Um, and poets often have to distinguish such things. You might realize that you'd put the word orange into a poem and it wouldn't be clear what you meant. And then because you are trying to direct the reader's experience into something somewhat similar to the experience that came to you as you were writing the poem, Maybe you have to specify that it's the fruit. Maybe you have to put the orange in a bowl. You have to both draw upon and be very particular about the words that you're using in a poem if you want to evoke a particular fully embodied experience. One other thought that I've had was when you, JD, were talking about intuition and rationality, and... I think these are less divvied up between our disciplines than, you know, the first thought response to them might be. I think scientists must be deeply intuitive in order to find their question, to find their hypothesis. And poets must be deeply rational to test whether what they've put on the page is going to hold any meaning for anybody else. And plus, you know, the rational mind is greatly a part of our experience. I kind of love poems that skirt the edge of being almost a scientific paper, and I love scientific papers that come near to being poems.
1: I think that is absolutely wonderful. I've had the opportunity to to speak to a lot of artists and scientists a lot like what we're doing today and over and over again i've observed that the similarity lies in the process the process of what we think of the artistic process and the scientific process and it's just exactly what jane was was talking about that it is very similar in certain aspects the the point of discovery the creative Uh, approach of how to ask the right question or the right type of question. Um, These are all things that I hear scientists talk about, but there is also often thought of as the domain of the writer, the poet, or the artist. I do want to go back to the word empathy. It's come up throughout, and I'd love to hear uh, both of you talk a little bit more about this and and maybe even explain to me what is the empathetic uh, circuit.
0: Sure. Um, and I had a thought also about um, Jane's orange example that might might link us back to empathy, but the word orange is technically you know, a non-emotional word. It's a fruit in this case. It is a color. We can link it to the facts. It's used in juices. You can make marmalade, whatever. There's all sorts of things we can learn about oranges. And as you said, Jane, without having that experience of what an orange tastes like, we it's like this empty kind of concept that we can imagine through a description or through someone else's experience. And that is where our empathy is critical to imagining, experiencing that shared orange experience, even if we haven't had it. You know, other words such as sadness, we think about it like emotional words. We think about them kind of in a similar way where What is sadness without the feelings in our body or the movements in our face that we show when we're sad? If you take those away, what are you left with? You know, you're left with a lot of facts of examples where you might feel sad, like a funeral, your dog dies. You know, we can list those situations, but the word itself becomes meaningless without that feeling inside. And we actually study some different kinds of diseases where people have decline and disruption in their brains and the parts of the brain that represent these different kinds of words. And they behave in ways that are a little unusual because they no longer can embody that feeling of sadness, for example. They also can lose their understanding of words like an orange, and that causes different problems in their everyday lives. But if we don't have those facts and knowledge about these different kinds of words, As I mentioned, we can still connect with others if we can share their emotions using empathy. And empathy is a complex construct with different facets to it. So, for example, you can have a more cognitive form of empathy where I can look at your face and I can see, oh, your eyebrows are going up and in, maybe he looks sad or... His mouth corners are downturned, so that's giving me more information. And I might not feel sad myself, but I can identify in you that you look sad based on the facts I see and maybe the situation that I see you in. There's another form of empathy that is often called emotional empathy. And that form of empathy is thought to be a little more automatic, and it's even present in other species where, you know, animals can share affect and and feelings of other animals. If one is startled, another animal may startle. I have two dogs. When one dog howls at an ambulance siren going by, the other dog starts howling within a second and they share this kind of wailing howl at, at the sound of the siren. So it's not a complicated cognitive you know, process that happened. It's this really low level reverberation, this resonance of feeling that depends on the parts of the brain that allow us to mimic and mirror another's face and behavior. And also it allows our bodies to synchronize in their physiology. So if your heart rate speeds up, my heart rate might speed up just from these very kind of simple, evolutionarily simple sharing mirroring systems that exist in our bodies. And I think, again, returning to to poetry, If we can feel those feelings from those words on that page of another person or another creature, that empathy system becomes alive in us. Was that what you were asking about, Jane?
2: Yeah. And can I ask you before I say anything else? In human beings, and I think also in many animals, yawning is contagious. Is that empathy?
0: Yeah. Yawning is contagious. And people have linked it to empathy. I think it's a mirroring, you know, part of the system and we catch or it's a contagious yawn across, across individuals. And it is that same kind of system. I think people have tried to link it more directly to empathy and there might be a little bit of evidence for that, but um, yes, I would say it's the same, same idea of the mirroring kind of system that uh, allows us to connect with and, and share the feelings of those around us.
2: So, you know, poets are allowed to make bold statements without having to back them up. And one, one of my bold statements for some years now has been, I have a hypothesis that all understanding, any kind of understanding is in some way empathic because we exist in bodies. You know, we have built our worlds of human comprehension on the foundations of grass grows up or dying grass falls down. The light increases during the day and decreases at sunset. And everything we say is built on these very foundational and shared experiences. So uh, being a poet and allowed to do this, I've just come up with this feeling that, you know, we know math because we can count our fingers. It comes to a taproot of lived lives, which is diving way off into another subject. I will say this is my skepticism of large language model AI, which is so much in everybody's thoughts right now, is the accident of linking because things have been much linked, but, but it's a mechanical process will never be able to include, or at least not yet, you know, maybe someday. I, I don't want to make a prediction about, about the, the far future of AI, but at the moment, what is completely missing from the chatbots of, of the current world is any actual empathic, joining of one thing to the next in the way that human beings do from probably the second after we're born, when you're laid on your mother's breast and you understand that the world is very different than it was up until then. But look, look what we find ourselves amidst, and somebody is smiling at you when your eyes are open, if you are at all lucky in this world. And so... We build our understanding, so we build our human lives. Empathy just seems to me foundational. It's the antidote to solipsism. It's the antidote to the pathology of thinking you're the only person who counts in this world. And we are, after all, mammals, and we are social mammals. We live in communities. Evolution put this into the mammalian brain, because it helps you survive. And the great bonus of it is it gives you pleasure and fear, you know, pain and comedy. All of this comes from meeting some experience in the world and having a reaction to it which includes the emotions and everything that... You know, as a scientist, and I only know as a person who laughs and weeps.
1: Well, you know, discussing empathy, and especially the way that you're talking about it, Jane, is kind of bringing my thoughts back to the March on Washington and your original action of wanting to bring the poetry to that area. Because isn't that a desire to create empathy? In that space is to create an emotional response i mean climate change we have data we have a lot of data and we have scientists who are expressing that data and that doesn't seem to be enough to change behavior you know what is the role of the poems at the march on washington as an example of this type of engagement
2: so you know, as Virginia rightly said, the poem began an outrage, which is not an emotion that usually leads to poetry for me. A great deal of that outrage was empathic for all of my research scientists, you know, that I both know and have never met. It was a sympathetic arising of how can they be treated this way? And so it was this feeling of, solidarity and protection that gave rise to the poem, that gave rise to the project. And I think, to answer your question a little more directly, I think, it seems to me that the emotional response is what tells us what matters and what doesn't matter. When a scientist makes a discovery— The magnitude of that discovery and the meaning of that discovery is recognized by how surprising it is, how awesome it is, how beautiful they find it. These are aesthetic and emotional responses, but they are the only way we know that something means something. And if you do not feel it as an unbearable tragedy, the extinction of species, If that does not cause your heart to plummet, why would you act against your short-term comfort?
1: Jane, let me insert one other thing. It's a little bit of a story here. It's the description of a graph that comes out of a National Academy's report, which I know is a very odd thing to suggest in this context. But what you're talking about, a function of Poetry in this uh, context, it reminded me of a graph from a report on the sustainability of field stations and marine labs. And basically, in the lower part of the graph, it said the labs and research stations were doing a great job of collecting science. And then you move up and they were saying the science scientists are doing a great job of interpreting that information. And then the next level is Do you create empathy for that information? And the report said, no, you're not. But then the next step is that the empathy is needed to impact society and the way people vote, which impacts legislation. So it's a very simple graph, but empathy is in the middle between scientific data in one corner and in the upper right-hand corner on the graph, there is the changing policy. You know, whether it's on a a local government, personal level or whatever, the changement, you know, something that makes a change. Empathy is in the middle. Now, the interesting story that I have is that there is a field station called Sage Hen Creek Field Station. They have an artist residency program and that artist residency program came out of that academy recommendation. It was inspired by it because they brought in artists and poets and writers in order to connect with the community around them. And I thought that that was a really wonderful, wonderful story. And Virginia, I I want to kind of hand it back to you. What is the role of empathy as we're thinking about uh, the decisions that we make? So you know, it's like it's everything from the personal to the local government to you know institutional governments to you know federal and, and international governments.
0: Yeah, I, I love that example of empathy playing the mediator role between. <laughs> the science and the actionable changes, I think that it's always easier to have empathy for people, you know, who we're closer to or who we know better and who are more similar to ourselves. And so when we see people as different and others and not relevant to our own lives, it's much easier to lack empathy. And in in situations where people have very different views of the world, you um, it can be harder to find commonalities and and i was wondering just listening to jane's story about handing out her her poems if it one thing it's doing is creating this common sense of humanity and purpose and reminding people that we are all very similar and actually not that different after all and when we have this shared sense of humanity and purpose It's much easier to focus on others and feel safe and to take care of the community instead of worrying about ourselves and our own lives and being in a more protective, defensive mode. And so anything that we can do via empathy or other um, emotions that are related, such as compassion, awe is an emotion that Jane has referenced a few times today, that these are emotions that help us to feel a part of a larger community and to focus on the needs of others. And I think when we're trying to make changes in our government or in our institutions that take care of those less fortunate or in need of more services or whatever the case may be, when we can find more commonalities with those groups through our empathy, then it's much easier to want to change the systems to help, to help others rather than to maintain the status quo because it's easier or because, you know, it's cheaper or whatever the driving, um, factors may be.
1: Virginia. That's, that's wonderful. Jane, it just seems like it would be a shame to have such a brilliant poet here without asking you, could you please read us something?
2: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I could read any number of poems I and mean, the, the most recent book ledger is greatly turned towards, uh, Catastrophes of climate and biosphere and social justice also. But I think I should go with the poem that precipitated Poets for Science coming into existence. And so I will read you that. The title, as I, as I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation, comes from uh, the date it was written, which was uh, January 24th, 2017. And it's called On the Fifth Day. On the fifth day, the scientists who studied the rivers were forbidden to speak or to study the rivers. The scientists who studied the air were told not to speak of the air, and the ones who worked for the farmers were silenced, and the ones who worked for the bees. Someone from deep in the badlands began posting facts. The facts were told not to speak and were taken away. The facts, surprised to be taken, were silent. Now it was only the rivers that spoke of the rivers and only the wind that spoke of its bees, while the unpausing factual buds of the fruit trees continued to move toward their fruit. The silence spoke loudly of silence, and the rivers kept speaking of rivers, of boulders, And air. Bound to gravity, earless and tongueless, the untested rivers kept speaking. Bus drivers, shelf stalkers, code writers, machinists, accountants, lab techs, cellists kept speaking. They spoke the fifth day of silence. Now, one of the great things about reading that to the people gathered on the Washington Mall, it totally startled me. When I when I mentioned the bees, there happened to be a big group of people near the front of this very large crowd who were dressed in bee costumes, and they started jumping up and down and shouting and waving their placards. And when I mentioned the Badlands, you all probably remember how that day, when everything was silenced, people began tweeting facts from the Badlands and then they were shut down when i mentioned the badlands from deep in the middle of this immense crowd there suddenly uprose a roar of you know people who probably came from there i don't know but it was so unnerving because poets are not used to people cheering and roaring during their readings that i almost lost it completely i was just so startled
1: <laughs> jane that's a wonderful example of what virginia was just talking about about The ability of the poet and the poem to unite us in a commonality, to find common ground. It is a wonderful example, both the poem and the story. Thank you so much. Virginia, Jane, I just want to thank you so much for your time, your energy, and your insight that you brought to this conversation. I personally have really enjoyed it, and I hope our listeners will too. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: What a dynamic and fun conversation. We have learned so much about ourselves and our place in the world by looking at this relationship between poetry and science, between the rational and the intuitive. Thank you to Jane and Virginia and to our listeners for joining us for this episode of The Ongoing Transformation. You can learn more about Jane's work by visiting poetsforscience.org and more information about the exhibition can be found at the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences website at cpnas.org. Find out more about Virginia's work at the University of San Francisco's Clinical Effective Neuroscience Lab by visiting their website, canlab.ucsf.edu. You can find links to these resources and more in our show notes. Subscribe to The Ongoing Transformation wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us at podcast at with any comments or suggestions. And if you enjoy conversations like this one, visit issues.org where you can subscribe to our magazine and find more essays. Thanks to our podcast producer, Kimberly Quach and audio engineer, Shannon Lynch. I'm J.D. Kolosik, Director of Cultural Programs at the National Academy of Sciences. Thank you for joining us.